Dhammaki Jai, Matura Dhammaki Jai, Navajit Mayapur Dhammaki Jai, Jagannath Puri Dhammaki Jai, Gangamai Jamuna Devi Ki Jai, Bhakti Devi Ki Jai, Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai, Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda Ki Jai, Gora Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Garanga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasaya Bhutale Srimati Bhaktivedanta Swami Niti Namane Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pacharane Nirvasesa Sunyavadi Paskajade Satarane Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Uta Padakamalam Shri Guru and Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sadvrajatam Sagana Raganatam Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Deva Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sagana Lavita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Jai Jai Shri Chaitanya Jai Anichananda Jai Jai Shri Chaitanya Jai Anichananda Jai Jai Adwaita Chandra Jai Gora Bhakta Vrinda Jai Jai Shri Chaitanya Jai Anichananda Jai Adwaita Chandra Jai Gora Bhakta Vrinda So it's October 12th, 2019 in Solo Street, London, England. We're reading from Chaitanya Charitamrita on Chalila, chapter 8. Ramachandra Puri criticizes the Lord, text 28 to 50. Is 28 on the board? Ishwara Puri says on this one. Ishwara Puri Gosani Kare Shri Pada Sevana. Swahaste kare namala mutradi marjana. Please chant. Ishwara Puri. Ishwara Puri. Gosani. Goswami. Kare. Performs. Shri Sevana. Service to Madhavinda Puri. Swahaste with his own hand. Karena performs Mala Mutra Adi, stool urine and so forth. Marjana cleaning. So we're going to be looking in these verses, we're going through quite a lot of verses here, about how we get the mercy of Guru and Krishna. So that's particularly important in this Dhammadar month. Because in this Dhammadar month, we especially focus on what pastime? The Dhammadar Lila, which is Mother Yasoda trying to tie up Krishna. Now, generally in 2019, parents don't tie up naughty children, but they put them in uh, like a playpen. Like they'll put them in some kind of a confined space. Yes? Did you call it playpen here in the UK? What do you call those things here? Playpen, that'll do? All right. Uh, so, Amadiya <laughs> Soda wanted to tie up Krishna. She didn't have a playpen. And so she took ropes, and she took the ropes from everybody in the village. She took the hair ribbons out of her hair, everything she could find that was rope-like. And she was trying to tie up Krishna, but what happened? It was always two fingers too short. 
no matter how many ropes that she added. And what do we learn from this pastime about the relationship between effort and mercy? They're equally important. Right? Mother Yasoda had to make an effort, but her effort was always not enough. No matter how much effort she made, and it was it was almost absurd. There's this little boy with a with a belt around his waist, and she's getting all the ropes from the village and tying them together. So we can make a lot of effort in our spiritual life, even to that point. But still, it's not sufficient. There has to be mercy. Now, we don't just sit around waiting for mercy. We don't just say, well, I'm going to sleep all day and, you know, (laughs) and someday Krishna will be merciful to me. Krishna will be merciful if we make an effort, but it has to have mercy. Why Why do we need mercy? Yeah. Because we don't deserve. Because we don't deserve. Mercy means giving somebody something that they don't deserve. Isn't that the definition of mercy? Yes? Why don't we deserve our relationship with Krishna? It's our natural position. It's inherent. It's within the heart, our relationship with Krishna. It's eternal. Why don't we deserve it? Why do we need mercy for it? Because we've turned our back on him. So it's, it's comparable to the relationship between parents and a child. So the child doesn't have to deserve its parents' love. In fact, parents who tell their children that they have to deserve their love end up messing up their kids psychologically. Well, if you're not good, I won't love you. Yeah? I mean, the, the child is, is produced from the mother's body. The mother generally feels like the child is an extension of her body. Not loving your child is like not loving your own finger or something. Right? With the, with the verse about Diabach inheriting the kingdom of God, it's explained that all the child needs to do to get an inheritance is to stay alive. The child doesn't need to do anything. However, if a child turns against the parents, then they have to do something. So a child who works in cooperation with the parents, even if that child sometimes does things that are mischievous, naturally gets the parents' love and affection. But just like I knew some devotees whose son became a heroin addict, and they still loved him, but they wouldn't let him in the house. Why? What would happen when he'd come in the house? He would steal things. So it was with great regret that they kept him out of the house, but they kept him out of the house. So most of us don't really understand that we are rebellious, offensive beings. We don't really get that. Most of us look at ourselves and think, well, I'm a good person. It's generally how we think of ourselves. I keep in mind that even heavy-duty criminals generally think like that. You know, I read a fascinating article about from, written by this woman whose father was a serial killer. And, you know, she didn't know until he was arrested. She had no idea. And he was particularly heinous. He was called the Vine Torture Kill Killer. I don't remember how many people he killed. But anyway, once he was put in jail, he would write letters to his daughter. This article was about her conflicted relationship with her father. 
And in the letters he would write things like, you know, I'm a good guy, I just made some mistakes. You know, here's this guy who would, would pick off strangers from the street, tie them up, torture them, and kill them for his own enjoyment. Like whatever it was, 10 or 20 people. And then he says, well, I've made a few mistakes. You know, we think that's ridiculous. It's like, buddy, you're actually evil. But all of us conditioned souls have this problem that we don't really see And I'll warn any of you who are new to Krishna consciousness that one of the things that happens as you chant Hare Krishna is you start seeing, wow, I'm actually evil. I just warned you. Nobody warned me about this when I came to Krishna consciousness. You know, when I started Krishna consciousness, I was convinced that I was already like, you know, one millimeter away from pure devotional service. It was kind of shocking when the devotees in the temple would, would correct me. Like, how dare you correct me? I'm practically a pure devotee. So, probably I still think like that. All right, Krishna. But anyway, as one advances in Krishna consciousness, one starts to see that actually I'm full of, of evil. I'm full of selfish motives. That I'm the offender. That I'm not in suffering in this material world because Krishna just said, okay, you go to the spiritual world, you go to the material world. Okay, you guys can go to the spiritual world. You guys, you know, we need somebody in the material world. It's kind of empty. Why don't you go there? But it wasn't like that. You know, it wasn't like, okay, I think, eh, I haven't had any broken-legged people for a while. Why don't you break your leg? And it, it's, it's not like that. It's not that there's some whimsical God who's putting us into a condition of suffering. But we're putting ourselves into that condition because we're offenders. I talk to devotees who do prison preaching and they say practically everyone in the prison says they're innocent. You know, I'm sure some of them are, but like 98% is not very likely. So we have this mood. Now, I'd like us to think, and I I ask devotees this a lot, we've all had people who've offended, insulted, or betrayed us in our life, everybody. Had at least one person in your life who like bullied you or insulted you or something. And if that person was someone you liked, someone you wanted a relationship with, who gets to decide when the relationship is restored? The person who offended you or yourself? Why? Why? It's the offended party who gets to decide. It's never the offender. Now, if the offender comes to you, and if you genuinely want the relationship restored... You might say, well, look, you know, I'm glad to hear that you want to have the relationship back again. This is what you need to do. You might give them a list of things to do. But if the person then comes to you and said, look, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this, why aren't you letting me back into your house? Would that work? Would that work? No. No. Because then the whole mood is wrong. Correct? You would, you would understand that even though they did everything that you asked, there was something wrong with their mood. And therefore you'd say, I don't think I'm ready to trust you again. And, and I've had people do this with me, this exact thing. So therefore, there has to be mercy on the part of the offended party. The, part, the, the offended party has to reach out and say, okay. And sometimes we do that, we might give someone a list of ten things to do, and if they just do two of them, we might say, okay, okay, that's it. It's okay. You don't have to do everything. Yes? Do we sometimes do that? So Krishna has given us a list of things to do if we want to reestablish our relationship. 
But it also is about mercy. It's about mood. So this particular verses that we're reading are about getting mercy. How does one get mercy from Guru? Particularly, how does one get mercy from Guru? And how does one get mercy from God? But it's especially how to get mercy from Guru. And how not to get mercy from Guru. How, how you can tick all the boxes, but you don't get any mercy. And, and to remember with this, this particular lila, this particular section of the Chaitanya Charitamrita, how this is not a mechanical process. Bhakti is not, Krishna is not a vending machine. It's not like, you know, you put in your coins and you press some buttons and out comes ecstasy. You know, he, he's not a drug. It, it's not like, not like that. You know, we can talk about formulas and so forth, but we're really talking about a relationship. Okay, text 28, translation. Ishwara Puri, the spiritual master, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, performed service to Madhavinda Puri, cleaning up his stool and urine with his own hand. So, of course, this is from a time in India when people would use a field for, for their uh, toilet. Ishwara Puri was always chanting the holy name and pastimes of Lord Krishna for Madhavinda Puri to hear. In this way, he helped Madhavinda Puri remember the holy name and pastimes of Lord Krishna at the time of death. Pleased with Ishwara Puri, Madhavinda Puri embraced him and gave him the benediction that he would be a great devotee and lover of Krishna. So here we see Ishwar Puri. How does he get the mercy of his guru? Menial service. And, and service that... Who wants to do that? Anybody here want to sign up for the cleaning up the stool and urine detail? And if you, nobody wants to do that. Okay. You don't even like to do that for your kid. You might just be for an adult. It's not, it's not a palatable service. So he did a very menial and very unpalatable service. I remember we had uh, some Gurukul students who boarded with us, and we had chores for all of them to do, and one of the chores was to take out the compost. You understand what I'm saying? You know, it's where you put, like, the peels and whatever, and to put that out in the woods. And one, one of the boarders, she never wanted to take out the compost. You know, it's your day to take out the compost. Yeah, yes, Mother Mel, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. Finally, I said, you don't want to take out the compost. I mean, it was every week when it was her turn on the rota, you know. Finally, I said, all right, we'll just take you off compost duty. Uh, so by menial service, even something that, that's very difficult. And how was the other way that he got the mercy of his guru? Oh, that's externally, but can you get a little deeper than that? He was chanting the holy name and pastimes of Krishna to his guru, but can you go a little deeper? What about that really pleased his guru? Yeah? He understood his mood, yes. So he was able to understand the mood of his guru and what did his guru want. That his guru wanted to chant him to chant the holy name and the pastimes of Krishna at the time of him, his leaving his body. So he was willing to... He was willing to do some very menial service, and, and these are very elevated people, socially speaking. You know, and, and in India, there's, especially during this time, but even today, there is a very heavy idea of a caste system. I mean, maybe for us, cleaning a toilet is not a big deal. And even cleaning a toilet where there's, you know, poop and pee stuck on the toilet is not that big of a deal. But in, in this society, it was a very big deal. You know, I, I've gone to Indians' homes where the house is clean and the toilet is like, oh my God, because they won't clean it. 
And they're like, well, we're high caste people. We don't, we don't clean the toilets. And you find, you find that a lot of Indians, they'll hire one servant to clean the house and another servant to clean the toilet. You know, the servant who cleans the house just will not clean the toilet. Like, why can't you clean the toilet and then take a bath? You know, to me, it's like really simple. You, you, like there's a sign in the ladies' toilet room, after cleaning the bathroom, you take a, bath, a shower. Why can't you just do that? You know, clean the bathroom, clean the toilet room. Yeah, there's some poop on the toilet, whatever. And then you take a shower and you change your clothes. And life goes on. But they don't think that way. I mean, I know one, um, one of my god sisters who's American was helping with the Sandipani Muni school in Vrindavan. And she said to the teachers, you know, one nice thing to do is at the end of the school day, you work with the students to clean the classroom. That's something done in Japanese schools, by the way. And they threw her out. They said, we don't want you coming in anymore. You're not allowed to come back in the school. You can't instruct the teachers. And why was that? Because the teachers who were from Brahmin families, they said, we do not clean. And this, this is one reason that's been explained to me why there's so much rubbish I've thrown everywhere in India. That there'll be a rubbish bin, and people will not put the rubbish in the rubbish bin because they're like, I'm high caste. I don't, put, I don't take care of my rubbish. That's for the low-class people to do. So I throw my rubbish wherever I like, and somebody else has to come and clean it up. So this is... Of course, Srila Prabhupada did not have this mood at all in any way. He said, Brahman means clean. Brahman means that you keep a place cleaner than when you found it. Right? And, and that we should train our Gurukul children. And by the way, Prabhupada's idea of Gurukul for the children and the Brahmacharya Ashram for the adult men was equal, just by the way. And that, that the... the Students in the Gurukul should be trained to be revolutionary, clean, and so forth. But still, if we can understand the social system at this time of Madhavendra Puri and Ishwar Puri, for someone like Ishwar Puri to take this kind of job would, was really a, a deep humility. So this very, very deep humility and this understanding the mood of his guru. So this is how we get the mercy of our spiritual master. And what mercy did he get? Uh, text 31, thus Israel Puri became like an ocean of ecstatic love for Krishna. Isn't that what we all want? Anybody here not want to be an ocean of ecstatic love for Krishna? At Bhakti Sanatya Sarasvati with the Shikshastika Anandam Budivardhanam, he says that although we're infinitesimal when we're in touch with the Lord, we can experience unlimited bliss. So this is what we're all looking for. Krishna says this in the sixth chapter, right? Boundless transcendental bliss experienced through transcendental senses. So we're, and with the bliss we're looking for is not just like our own happiness, we're looking for a bliss of, of love, of love for Krishna. So by these two things, understanding the mood of the guru and being willing to do very menial service, this guru blessed him, you will be an ocean of ecstatic love for Krishna. Okay, whereas Ramachandra Puri became a dry speculator and a critic of everyone else. So here's another disciple who doesn't get the mercy. And Ramachandra Puri was a very strict devotee. He was what we would call paka, devotee. He'd definitely be an ISKCON member in good standing. Okay? He definitely ticked all the boxes. But he just, he became dry. So instead of being an ocean, he became dry. So Ishwar Puri received the blessings of Madhavendra Puri, whereas Ramachandra Puri received a rebuke from him. Therefore, these two persons, Ishwar Puri and Ramachandra Puri, are examples of the objects of a great personality's benediction and punishment. 
Madhavan Dupuri instructed the entire world by presenting these two examples. His divine grace, Madhavan Dupuri, the spiritual master of the entire world, thus distributed ecstatic love for Krishna. While passing away from the material world, he chanted the following verse, O my Lord, O most merciful Master, O Master of Mathura, when shall I see you again? Because of my not seeing you, my agitated heart has become unsteady. O most beloved one, what shall I do now? In this verse, Madhavinda Puri teaches how to achieve ecstatic love for Krishna. By feeling separation from Krishna, one becomes spiritually situated. Madhavinda Puri sowed the seed of ecstatic love for Krishna within this material world and then departed. That seed later became a great tree in the form of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Now we're seeing how one gets the mercy of God. And one gets the mercy of God to such an extent that Krishna Das Kaviraj is explaining that Madhavinda Puri is the seed of the tree of love of God of Lord Chaitanya. We think about this for a minute. Lord Chaitanya is God. How can the seed of love of God in Lord Chaitanya come from a devotee? But that's the, the mercy of the Lord. The mercy of the Lord is that he puts the devotee as higher than himself. We see that in this world with parents and children, that the, the parent wants the child to achieve something more than themselves, usually. Usually. I mean, some parents are envious, but generally speaking. So Krishna wants the devotee. He puts, you know, Arjuna, you're the warrior. I'm just the servant. I'm just the charioteer. Amadavindapur, you're the cause of prema bhakti in the world. I'm just coming from your cause of prema bhakti. So this is the mood of the Lord. And we get the mercy of the Lord to this extent. I mean, being a servant of the Lord is not like being a servant in the material world. Nobody wants to be a servant in the material world. I, I never met any parents who teach their children, please grow up and be a servant. It, it's just, nobody wants to be a servant. So what are your kids doing right now? Well, you know, my daughter cleans hotel rooms and my son's a waiter. And, and who wants to say like this? You want to say, you know, well, my kid's an IT specialist or a doctor, right? My kid cleans toilets in the offices. I mean, who nobody says But being a servant of Krishna is not like that. Being a servant of Krishna is such that Krishna glorifies the servant above himself gives the servant a higher position. I've incidentally described the passing away of Madhavinda Puri. Anyone who hears this must be considered very fortunate. Now, what did Ramachandra, it's not in this section, but what did Ramachandra Puri say to, to Madhavinda Puri when he was passing away? Instead of saying Krishna's name and Krishna's pastimes, what did he say? He said, Brahma Bhutta Prasanatmana, Sochatina Kanchati, Samasarvesha Bhutte, Shumad Bhakti, Mabhate Param. What are you lamenting for? Because Madhavindapur is like, Where is Krishna? I think I would stop Krishna. You know, he was all emotional. Like, you know, if we see some devotees, like, I lost my phone, I don't know where my phone is. And we're like, Hey, you know, I mean, I understand you want your phone, but you don't have to be in Maya about it. And that's how Ishwar Puri talked to Madhavindapuri. It's like, why are you crying for Krishna? Imagine that. Why are you crying for Krishna? You should be situated in Brahma. 
So thus Ramachandra Puri stayed at Jagannath Puri. As is customary for those in the renounced order, he would sometimes stay someplace and then go away. So generally people in the renounced order don't have a permanent residence or they're always coming and going. There was no certainty of where Ramachandra Puri would take his meal, for he would do so even uninvited. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, there is a principle that renunciates can go door to door as a as madukari, like a bee, taking a little bit from each place. But you generally don't just show up at a house and ask for a whole meal. And the whole idea of madukari is that way you don't burden anyone. You go to a house. Can I just have a little? Can I have a little? Can I? And don't even come in. You just like stand at the door, and maybe they can give you one japati or a palmful of rice, and it's not inconvenient. But to show up for a whole meal uninvited is a little inconvenient. Yes. It's not very respectful of the, of the host. Nevertheless, he was very particular about keeping account of how others were taking their meals. So here we see that he's not considerate of his hosts, but instead of seeing any fault in himself, he's finding others. To invite Trite Tanya Mahaprabhu would cost 320 kodis, small conch shells. This would provide lunch for three people, including Trite Tanya Mahaprabhu and sometimes Kashisvara and Govinda. Govinda was his servant. Every day, the Lord would take his meal to a different place, and if someone was prepared to pay for a meal, the price was fixed at only four punas. Ramachandra Puri cons- uh, concerned himself with gathering all sorts of information about how Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was situated, including his regulative principles, his lunch, his sleep, and his movements. Now, we find today that there are people in our Hare Krishna movement who do exactly this that they take it as their business to be, you know, like an, an investigative journalist. And they're, you know, they're going around, okay, what did you eat? How much money did you get? Where did you sleep? What are you wearing? Where did you go? Do we have people like this? Yes, we do. You know, and now that we have the internet, I mean, it used to be, and, and when Prabhupada was with us, that if you wanted to criticize someone, you had to, like, type it up on a typewriter and then, you know, you could make some carbon copies. Probably you have no idea what that is, right? You put like a sheet of carbon and you could make maybe three copies that way. If you wanted to make a whole lot of copies, you had to pay for something to be printed at a print shop. You know, like regular printing. Or else you had to type in what's called a mimeograph. It was a special kind of paper that would have like this purple ink. And then you'd have to have a mimeograph machine. And you'd run it through a mimeograph machine. And then you'd have all this paper that you mimeographed or you printed and you'd have to collate it and staple it and then you'd have to take it to the post office and you would have to pay for the postage to mail it all over the world. And so because of that, it was a little difficult to write up an expose about various people and distribute it widely to all the temples. You know, of course, we did have the telex machine where we could send, you know, brief things. But anyway, it was, it was a little difficult. Now it's very easy you just go to your computer, even your phone, and you just, you know, type a few things or just voice dictate them, and then you can send it out to 3,000 people in five minutes. Yes, it's quite, it's quite interesting. So, but he was gathering all this information. Now, in those days, there weren't even typewriters, so if you wanted to disseminate, uh, you know, gossip about somebody, you had to write it by hand on, on a leaf, you know, and then you'd have to engage some scribes that you paid to copy it onto other leaves. And then I don't know if there was a sophisticated postal system, but, you know, I think you had to get, like, couriers to take it to different places. <coughs> so it was, it was much more difficult. But anyway, he was at least 
uh, gathering information. So one can assume that he had some kind of note-taking system. I don't know if he used spies or if he just did everything himself, but he was, he was definitely involved in gathering information for the purpose of fault-finding. As we find the next verse, because Ramachandra Puri was interested only in finding faults, he could not understand the transcendental qualities of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. His only concern was finding faults, but still he could not find any. So the poor guy must have been extremely frustrated. And I, I know of some situation, I, I'm not going to get into the details, but I know of some situation where a devo- one devotee, we'll call him devotee A, had heard that devotee B had done something wrong. And so devotee A was scouring the internet every few days to try to find some proof and some evidence that devotee B had found something wrong. And finally, when they, they found something, then they disseminated it widely. So they were, they were looking for months and months and months. Uh, they were looking, you know, every day, Googling that person's name and trying to find something on them. And, and sometimes we've seen people in our Krishna consciousness movement, if they can't find a fault, they invent one. So we've also seen that. So I know one devotee who, um, he was looking for fault in someone and he couldn't find any faults in, some, in them, so he took a video of someone else doing something wrong. And he said that video of someone else, who wasn't a devotee at all, was a video of this person. You understand what I'm saying? It's like if someone found some video of just some you know, random non-devotee and posted it and said, this is Jaini Tai, look what he's doing. There probably are. So anyway, anyway, I know someone who actually who actually did this. He actually did this. He found a video of someone else and said, "This is so and so devotee, and look what they're doing." When it was, and, and he knew that he was doing that. He knew that it was somebody else. So, so people become so desperate to find faults, you know, that they just make them up or they just invent them. So at last, he found a fault. How can a person in the renounced order eat so many sweetmeats, he said. If one eats sweets, controlling the senses is very difficult. In this way, Ramachandrapuri blasphemed Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu before everyone, but nevertheless he would regularly come to see the Lord every day. So this is also interesting. Because many times when people are fault finders, they present themselves as being a well-wisher. They say, well, I'm not really a fault finder. I'm not really trying to criticize Actually, I really care about you, and I'm just trying to be helpful, and I'm just trying to purify everything. Yes? Right? I mean, many, many years ago, some devotee called me. I don't remember the person's name, and I don't think I ever met the person. And I don't remember what they were trying to convince me to do. But the person told me that they felt their service to Prabhupada was to destroy ISKCON and start all over again. And I thought, well, that's a very strange idea of a service. So people have this, this concept you know, that this is my mission. Just the other day I met somebody uh, here who said they had a friend who was convinced that Prabhupada gave them the service to root out all corruption and faults in ISKCON. And I said, how do they know Prabhupada gave them that service? What's their evidence? That Prabhupada said, I want you to be, you know, the, the person to find all the faults in ISKCON. You just imagine it. Oh, I'm imagining that I am now the Yamaraj of ISKCON. And then they, you know, they present themselves. Oh yes, you know, I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve. And actually, they're just looking for faults. When they met, the Lord would offer him respectful obeisances, considering him a godbrother of his spiritual master. Ramachandra's Puri, Ramachandra Puri's business, however, was to search for faults in the Lord. 
Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu knew that Ramachandrapuri was criticizing him before everyone, but whenever Ramachandrapuri came to see him, the Lord offered him respects with great attention. So here we see the, the uh, epitome of the Trinadapi verse, which Mahaprabhu wrote, and here he's exemplifying it. That we offer all respects and we don't expect to be respected in return. This is a very, very difficult thing for most conditioned souls to do. Most of us conditioned souls want everyone to respect us and we don't want to respect anybody. You know, or we want to be very picky and choosy about who we respect. So this tendency of being very easily offended. You know, Mahaprabhu had a good reason to be offended. He had a very good reason to be offended. I mean, here's, here's this person going around making up stories about him and criticizing him to everybody, you know, and investigating him, looking for fault. And here's a person who was criticized by his own guru and who offended his own guru. So how many ways could Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu have found fault with him? But he didn't. He respected Ramachandra Puri. And this point is also extremely important if we want to get the mercy of the Lord. The one who goes on tolerating difficulties in life, considering them the mercy of the Lord, and who offers more obeisances to the Lord, inherits the kingdom of God. If, if we're very easily offended or even if we're offended at all by anybody, then we really don't get the mercy of God. There is a place for anger in Krishna consciousness, but that anger should never be when we're insulted or we're offended. there's, There's no place for anger, there's no place for outrage, there's no place for indignation, there's there's no such thing as righteous anger when I've been offended. That that anger there's there's just no place for it at all. That that's Krishna's business to take care of people who offend me. Now many times we excuse our anger at people offending us by saying it's not about offending us, by saying we're angry on the basis of some principle, or they're really offending other people. When, when we're the ones who feel personally insulted. So we can sometimes cover, you know, say, well, it, it's really, I'm really defending Prabhupada, well, I'm really defending the other devotees, well, I'm really defending a principle, and actually we're just defending our own ego. And there, there's many means by which one can give up this tendency to feel angry when we get insulted or offended. I mean, one thing that I found personally very helpful is to remember where the anger and uh, indignation comes from when we get offended. You know, we're, we're programmed by the Lord biologically to protect ourselves. You know, our bodies and, and brains, our minds are programmed to notice any kind of threat and to keep ourselves safe, yes? And that, that's a good thing. That, that's the kindness of Krishna. And we tend to be alert in our environment for threats, which is why we tend to have a negative disposition in general, why we tend to see negative instead of positive, because we're, we're constantly scanning our environment to see, you know, is there a barking dog? Is there a piece of broken glass on the floor? You know, is there something that may threaten my, my safety or my life? Now, we're social animals. We're herd animals. And therefore, among social animals, access to resources is dependent to some extent on status within the group. 
like in a pride of lions, the male lions eat first, then the lionesses, and then the cubs. You eat according to your status. You have access according to your status among most herd animals. So when someone insults us, it triggers a response within our body that I may be under threat. That some access to my life and my survival may be under threat. And therefore it triggers a possible fear and anger response. I have to defend myself. Very much like if, you know, if somebody comes up to Oxford, on Oxford Street with a knife. So we, we physiologically respond to insults and offense very much the same way we respond to a barking dog or a knife. That we feel threatened. And of course that's especially true if the person who's insulting or offending us is someone who has some power over our life and over our resources, you know, an intimate friend, intimate family member, or someone who's in charge of us in some way. You know, anything where we're really feeling that our survival in some sense is threatened. Now, if we understand this, if we understand this mechanism, that it's a loving mechanism given by Krishna so that we don't die by the time we're five, you know, that we, that we have some means of, of protection, then we don't have to respond to us to, to it where there actually is no threat. You know, why is it that as soon as someone insults me or offends me, there's this like, thing that comes up. You know, and then we justify, well, this and 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 that, this thing and that thing and that thing. We have all these thoughts that justify that emotion. But that's, it, that's all it is. It's just a physiological, biological reaction. That's all it is. It isn't anything else. It isn't something spiritual. It isn't something significant. It, it's not anything meaningful. It just isn't anything meaningful. It's like if we decide to fast. We've all fasted on a fast day? Everybody's fasted? Yes? And does hunger come into the body? Yeah. Right? I found like if I do a, if I've done near gel and no sleep, if I've done a fasting from food, water, and sleep. So I find that about 11 o'clock, I start feeling hunger. And if I tolerate that, that kind of goes away. And then at about 2 or 3, I start feeling thirst. If I tolerate that, that goes away. And at about 1 or 2 in the morning, I start feeling tired. So you know if you're fasting that some feeling of hunger is going to come into the body, yes? You expect that. And, but you've already decided, Prabhupada gives us as an example, by the way, he gives us an example of how to deal with lusty feelings, but you, you, yeah, I've already decided, I'm not eating today. I'm not eating today. I mean, you just tolerate, you just say, oh, there's going to be hunger in the body, and you don't try to kill it, you know, say, hunger, go away. <laughs> you know, it just goes away if you ignore it. It's like, you know, sorry, we're not eating right now. And we, we even do that if we're not fasting, you know, if we're in the middle of some project or some service and, or something and we're, it's time to eat, but we don't want to eat. And we just say, you know, just, just, just wait a bit. And then the feeling passes on its own, correct? So we can do that also with this, this feeling of fear and anger that comes when we're insulted and offended. And do we all get insulted and offended? Yes, it happens. And, and, and it happens fairly regularly, in fact. You know, if we just see, oh, this is a natural biological reaction. And, and I'm making a decision that I am not going to demand respect. My safety and my security come from 
Krishna, Mari Krishna, Rake K, Rake Krishna, Mari K. If, if Krishna wants somebody, you know, if, if Krishna wants me to be thrown out of the temple and everybody in ISKCON hates me and nobody talks to me anymore, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, St. Francis of Assisi, he was walking with a friend and they were talking about what is real joy. A very interesting conversation. And he comes down to real joy is if we brothers come to a monastery in the middle of a rainy, cold night and we knock on the door and ask for shelter and the brother answering the door knows that we are monks in the order and even so says that he doesn't know us that we're pretenders and we're false and throws us out into the rain and cold and we're still happy. That is real joy. To just be beyond any concept that I need the respect of other people in this world in order to be safe and happy. That all I need is Krishna. And this is something that's worth cultivating because uh, I was just talking to Jagat Mohini the other day about uh, Bhajana Rahasya, Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur equates this Trinata verse with entering into Nishta, with going from the Inarta Nivriti stage into Nishta. And we're never going to achieve Krishna Prema unless we go through Nishta, unless we become steady. And people ask all the time, how do I become steady in Bhakti? How do I become steady in Bhakti? How do I become steady in Bhakti? Well, the answer is the Trinata verse. That's the answer. And it, it really, to really do this, that Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, did he have every reason to be insulted and offended by Ramachandrapuri? <coughs> Would Mahaprabhu's anger at Ramachandrapuri be completely, totally, 100% justified? Yes? No? Maybe so? Come on, if somebody's investigating your life and following you around and maybe sending out spies and taking notes on what you're doing? and then telling everyone you did something wrong that you didn't do? And that person was a senior person? How many of us would just be, oh, that's cool? And, and he's offering respects with great attention. I offer you my respects. I offer you my respects. One day Ramachandrapuri came in the morning to the abode of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Seeing many ants, he said something to criticize the Lord. Last night there was sugar candy here, he said. Therefore ants are wandering about. Alas, this renounced sannyasi is attached to such sense gratification. After speaking this way, he got up and left. So, I'll read the next one, then we'll go to this. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had heard rumors about Ramachandrapuri's blasphemy. Now he directly heard his fanciful, fanciful accusations. So now Lord Chaitanya has strong evidence. Prabhupada's purport. Ramachandrapuri could find no fault in the character of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, for he is situated in a transcendental position as the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Ants are generally found everywhere. But when Ramachandrapuri saw ants crawling in the abode of the Lord, he took it for granted that they must have been there because Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had been eating sweetmeats. He thus discovered imaginary faults in the Lord and then left. So I thought here we refer to Vishnu Chakravati Thakur's commentary on Bhagavatam 4.4.12. Does anybody know what happens in the Bhagavatam 4.4 that has to do with fault finding? Anyone want to take a good guess? 
there's a heavy fault-finding thing that happens in the fourth canto of the Bhagavatam. Yes, excellent. So this 4.4.12 is about Daksha finding faults in Lord Shiva. And it's quite similar. What's similar about it? What's similar between Daksha finding faults in Shiva and Ramachandra finding faults in Mahaprabhu? There was no actual fault. What else? Finding fault in a superior person. Finding fault in a superior person, but thinking themselves to be superior. Thinking themselves superior on the basis of material designation. Was Ramachandra Puri superior to Mahaprabhu on the basis of material designation? Yes. Yes, he was the uh, god brother of his guru. Was Daksha superior to Lord Shiva on the basis of material designation? Why? You know, he's his father-in-law. His daughter had married Lord Shiva. So in both cases, we have people who thought themselves superior on the basis of a material designation, but actually were inferior, and it was no fault. Anything else that was similar? <coughs> they both were envious. They both were envious. <coughs> they both lost it, yeah. They both lost mercy. What else? They both advertised the fault. It wasn't just like, you know, if we go to someone and say, um, Prabhu, look, can I talk to you privately? Um, there's this and this that's happened, and I'm kind of concerned, and I think, you know, maybe you want to address this. Might might be a problem that you want to address. So it wasn't like that. But they were, you know, doctors were saying, just see the behavior of Lord Shiva! And Ramachandra Puri is doing the same thing. He's going around to everybody. Lord Chaitanya, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He's not a real sannyasi. There were ants in his room. <laughs> so ridiculous. So Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur, he's commenting on this mood. And, and I thought I'd, I'd read over uh, from his commentary. He says there's four gradations of good persons and four of bad persons based on the degree of sattvagun or tamagun. So good persons... There's the Mahat, who sees others' faults as capable of being transformed into good qualities. Okay? So an example. Speaking harshly is a bad quality, but because it can be for someone's benefit, it becomes a good quality, like neem juice, which cures sickness, although it's bitter. So if I see someone who speaks harshly, I could think, you know, this person could use that to help correct other people. So I see the fault as a potential good quality. Does this make sense to everybody? By the way, that's especially important if you're training children to see their faults as, potential, as untrained good qualities. Then there's the Mahatara. They overlook faults and they see the good. So examples, seeing a merchant, though a materialist, they conclude that he takes care of guests nicely and is worthy of deliverance. So they're aware of the faults, but they just, they, they just focus on the good. Now, all of us who have close relationships with people have to do that to some degree or we can't get along with those people. If there's, if there's people we live with or interact with on a regular basis, if we don't focus on the good and overlook the faults that we're aware of, we find living with them intolerable. 
Then there's the Mahatma. They magnify good qualities and they don't even see the faults at all. Example, this person has stolen my cloth because he is cold. And although he has a weapon, he does not attack me because he is merciful. Therefore, he is very virtuous. So someone who comes up to you with a knife and steals your clothes and you say, how wonderful this person is. Although he had a knife, he didn't use it on me. And he's just a cold person, so that's why he needed my clothes. What a virtuous person this is. So they just don't see a fault at all. All they see is good. Ati Mahatmana. They see only good qualities where there aren't any. So in this world, there's no bad people. Everyone is good. By the way, Srila Prabhupada did this with someone and it's something that Srila Prabhupada gets really criticized for. Who did Srila Prabhupada do this? Magnifying a good quality. No, I was thinking about Hitler. Her Prabhupada said Hitler acted as a gentleman because he didn't throw an atomic bomb on anyone. And Prabhupada gets so criticized for that statement. I mean, if you find like a list of statements that Prabhupada gets criticized for, that's one of them. And people say, oh, is he pro-Hitler? No, he's just a Mahatmana. He's somebody that even someone comes up to you with a knife and steals your clothes, you say, well, he didn't use a knife. What a virtuous person. Okay, those are the four good persons. So the first good person, first level, they see the faults as potential good qualities. They see the faults, but they see this could be used for something good. You could do something good with it. The next, they overlook the faults. They know about the faults, but they, they just don't pay much attention to it. They focus on the good. The next is they magnify good qualities, and they don't see any faults at all. And the most extreme good person only sees good and just even when there's no good at all to see. They just see good. Okay, bad persons. So, asadu. They see others' good qualities as capable of being transformed into false. Sounds so funny. Example, someone who wants to help others will become greedy for their assets. They're saying, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Now they're being very helpful right now, but, but their helpfulness, they're, they're going to want something from you later. And they're going to take something later. Asaduttara overlooks the good in others but sees the faults. Example, this person has renounced but he also eats a lot. This sannyasi eats ghee rice to fill his stomach. He is lusty and should be considered fallen. So that's exactly the category of Ramachandrapuri. Actually, we're going to have even more, we should say. But at least he's doing that. At least he thinks he's doing that. He thinks that Lord Chaitanya actually has a fault. Yes? And so he's ignoring... The fact that Lord Chaitanya didn't even want to sleep on a cushion. Yes, you know that story with Jagannanda Pandit? Lord Chaitanya didn't even want to sleep on a cushion. And he's saying, but he's eating sweets, so therefore he's just fallen. So just to overlook the good, forget about the good, and just see fault. Then, a sadhutama magnifies small faults and sees no good. Example, this renunciate has given up the forest and lives in the house of a married man. He only wants to steal their money. So she just... (laughs) 
So not seeing any good at all and taking something that's not really a fault and magnifying it. And then the last one, Ati Asad Uttama sees only faults in others where there are none in this world, no one is good, everyone is evil. And that's actually what Ramachandra Puri is doing. So he's seeing faults where there aren't any faults. So here we find that by pleasing Guru, by doing menial service for Guru, one gets this ocean of unlimited love for Krishna. Not only that, one gets the Lord as his own disciple. One gets all benedictions. And by criticizing Guru, one becomes dried up and one starts just becoming a fault finder. Did Ramachandra Puri think that he was dried up? What did he think he was? Saturated. Huh? Saturated. Saturated with love of God. How, what was his evidence procedure? How did Ramachandra Puri look at himself and decide that he was actually very advanced in spiritual life? Recognition. That he was getting some recognition, that people like Lord Chaitanya would pay respects to him. So he decided that that was due to his very advanced spiritual standing. How else? Oh, he's a material knowledge. He's he might have had a lot of material knowledge. Not, not, I don't know. Could be. His own mental deduction. That his own mental deduction, he's just decided that he was, but on the basis of what? What did he see in himself that he made that deduction? He's Paka. <laughs> Jiva Goswami uh, writes about what happens to us when we stop becoming, when we intentionally become inattentive in our practices of bhakti, when we intentionally do our practices mechanically. And it seems very similar to what happens in this case of being fault-finding. Um, one of the things that happens is that we measure our progress by our external achievements. So we say, you know, well, I'm chanting so many rounds every day and I'm waking up at this time and I've offered so many sticks of incense and I've given so much money and I've sold so many books and therefore I am making progress in Krishna consciousness, that we judge our progress by those sort of uh, numerical things. You know, how many lamps have I offered during Kartik and how many beads have I moved between my fingers while I say the Hare Krishna mantra and, and those sorts of things. You know, how many preps have I cooked? It, it's interesting, when I was teaching, uh, when I was regularly teaching Raghunath Das Goswami Sri Manashiksha, and this kind of attitude is uh, one that Bhaktivinoda Thakur understands as taking a bath in donkey urine instead of the ocean of love. So you think you're getting clean. You know, Ishwar Puri has actually become, he's not only just taking a bath in the ocean of love, he's become an ocean of love. So he's certainly bathing in an ocean of love. And Ramachandra Puri is actually bathing in donkey urine, which is very stinky and burning. It's, it's very acidic. And so Ramachandra Puri's heart was always burning, wasn't it? It was, it was always dissatisfied. It was constantly dissatisfied, constantly dissatisfied. But one of the symptoms of this donkey urine bath is, is thinking that it's the externals of bhakti that make you advance. It's judging your advancement by these externals. And so you think, I'm getting clean, I'm getting purified. 
you know, there's some kind of liquid going over you. So you're thinking, wow, I'm, I'm taking a bath and I'm getting purified. But you don't realize that actually uh, it's simply something stinky. So Ramachandrapuri had this mentality. And, and I, I, I must say that I've seen this many, many times in our Hare Krishna movement. I've seen it in myself. You know, where we think that as long as my behavior is really pukka, that I have a, a, a stance by which I can criticize others. And, and I've experienced this myself, that if I get into, or when I get into this critical mentality, everything dries up, and I simply feel dissatisfied, and the only way I can feel good about myself is by looking at my external accomplishments. And it's, it's quite interesting. You know, and and I've, I've met many devotees who are really super, super strict in their externals, and all they can do is criticize and criticize and criticize. Now, of course, what will happen eventually to such people? Well, they don't really have a taste for bhakti at all. And so what will, what will happen? What generally happens with such people? They generally go away more or less. I found these people often move geographically far. They'll say, oh, I found a great place to live. It's only a four-hour drive from any other devotees. You know, I found many times that they kind of... And, and they think it's wonderful. You know, or now we're going to start our own society of, of, of all the people who are really pure. You know, we're going to start our... And they, they, they do this. You know, we're going to start our own critics society. Now, we are in Nandamaya Biasat. We're pleasure-seeking. So how do people like this, where are they getting their pleasure? The Ramachandra Puris? No. Where are they getting their pleasure from? Yeah, but how does that give pleasure? It puts you on top. It puts you on top, yes. But Prabhupada says that everything we do is motivated by rasa. He says that in the preface to the Nectar Devotion. That everything we do is motivated by rasa. So what, per, what twisted rasas do we enjoy when we are criticizing others? You all know the 12 rasas? This is important. If we want to, does everybody here want to give up criticizing Vaishnavas so we can come to Nishta and attain to Krishna Prema? Do we all want that, at least on some level? So in order to want, in order to achieve that, we have to know what am I enjoying? Because if we tell ourselves, well, I'm not really enjoying fault finding with others. You know, I'm doing it because I have a bad habit or something like that. If, if we don't admit that we're getting pleasure out of it, it's very hard to give it up. We need to see what pleasure we're getting out of it and then look that pleasure in the face and then go, that's not pleasure. So what is the pleasure one gets out of this kind of fault-finding? Okay, but think in terms of rasas. Okay, there's some kind of parental ras. It's a perversion of parental ras that I can correct you and I can guide. It's my job it's my job to correct you and guide you. Yes. Sort of also. Maybe some perversion of a chivalrous ras. Yes. Yes, that I'm doing this because one of the subcategories of the chivalry ras is dharma. That I'm fighting for dharma. It's one of the four subcategories of chivalry. What else? 
disgust? Are we taking pleasure in being disgusted at others' bad behavior? Oh, can you believe she did that? Oh my God. She went in the Pujari room and she hadn't washed her feet? That's so disgusting. That's a rasa. And what about anger? Anger is a rasa. Okay, so we have parental, chivalry, disgust, anger. Those are all rasas. And when we're criticizing others, we're trying to enjoy those rasas in a perverted way. By the way, when, when people criticize us, what rasas are we trying to enjoy if we don't let it go? When we're on the receiving end. When we're on the receiving end, like Mahaprabhu was on the receiving end. But, we're also relishing in some way. Yes, we're relishing something. What are we relishing when we get into it? This person's offended me. This person's insulted me. What are we enjoying? Anger, definitely. And sometimes grief. And disgust also. Sometimes also disgust. And sometimes grief, especially if we're like, oh my God, now my life's finished, people are insulting me. So we're, we're simply trying to enjoy these rasas separate from Krishna. That's all it is. And when we see that, we can see that that's ridiculous. Yes? As soon as we talk about it, aren't we like... That's ridiculous. It's not the way I want to enjoy those rasas. If we want to enjoy the rasa of disgust, where should we go in Krishna consciousness? Krishna. Yeah, where? Where is the rasa of disgust in Krishna? Okay, a little bit. But there's some he- there's a heavy duty discussed pastime in Krishna book. Really heavy duty. The fight with Jarasandar. What happens in the fight with Jarasandar? <coughs> there's rivers of blood. I mean, isn't that do any of you go like, oh that's so sweet? There was rivers of blood and there were body parts floating in it. Yeah, some of you are going like, yeah? And also, Prabhupada talks about specifically, if we want to relish discuss, well, there's someone on the altar. He was on, I think he was on Jagannath's altar this morning. Now he's back on Radha London as far as I want to. I mean, come on, he's wearing a garland of intestines. And Prabhupada specifically says, if you want to relish this uh, disgust rasa. Also, also, the rasa of disgust is mentioned in regard to neutral love of God by Rupa Goswami in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, that when we see our faults and evil in our heart, that can be an ecstatic disgust rasa. Now, how do you know it's a disgust rasa and not just like low self-esteem? Because there's a mix of disgust at our fallen nature with this feeling of ecstatic love for Krishna. So if ever Krishna showed us our anarthas and we we're like, oh my God, Krishna, I'm so sorry, that's disgusting. And you feel this happiness with the relationship with Krishna mixed with this utter and, and you know, really heavy disgust at what's going on in your own heart. That's also the ghastly rasa. So 
there's places in, 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 with Krishna that we can experience these if we want to experience them. And that's another way to get free of this desire to defend ourselves and to criticize others. Is look at what am I trying to enjoy here? What am I, I mean, part of it we can look at, I talked at earlier, that is biology. <laughs> that naturally I want to defend myself. And criticizing others is also biological. Again, we're herd animals. And we get more resources if I have a higher status than other people. So I want to insult them. Yeah? But, you know, I don't need to act like an animal. It's not required. So one level, as I see this, is something, it's a biological thing that I want to defend myself if someone attacks me and I want to attack someone else to posit myself as superior so that I get more access to resources and I'm safer and I can, I can live. And we can also see that on another level, I'm trying to enjoy rasas. When I defend myself or when I get feel offended, when I feel insulted, I'm trying to enjoy a rasa. And when I find faults in others, I'm trying to enjoy a rasa. But those rasas I'm trying to enjoy are not the real thing. They're a reflection. What does Krishna say? They're a reflection that appears to be in darkness. I'm trying to pick an apple out of a mirror. You know, all I do is hurt my hand on the mirror. So instead, why don't I find that rasa in Krishna? So to do those two things, that freedom from attachment and aversion that this is just the biology of the body, I don't need to be into it, and I find that rasa in Krishna. And when we live on this platform of always showing respect to others and expecting none in return, we receive the mercy of the Lord. Dayabhak as our natural inheritance. Just like a child who's not an offender naturally receives the inheritance of the parents. So, thank you very much. I hope it's all right that I went a little late. That was a lot of verses. That's my excuse. Um, we'll try. Well, you can. You can. Maybe you can even find some ants in my room. Well, they don't usually come up that high on a building in the city. <laughs> Any questions, comments? Yes. Hi, Krishna. Just two things. First, your comment and other question. Okay. <laughs> I heard one nice explanation about the main mistake of Ramachandra Puri that to misunderstand one's guru is basically not such a big deal but his main mistake was that he thought that I tried to help him but I couldn't <laughs> oh ok I like that very much okay. I tried but nothing happened right. but my question is you know you mentioned this was um, the Jenkin Bhamsa what does it mean practically how to offer basis which is one mind, body and mind So that when I'm going through some difficulty, whether the difficulty is, you know, a physical injury or illness, or whether the difficulty is, you know, that people are treating me unfairly or, or wrongly or they're making up lies about me or whatever, or whether the difficulty is completely created within my, my mind, that I understand that Krishna is allowing this difficulty. Mari Krishna, Rakhi K, Rakhi Krishna, Mari K. Krishna is allowing this difficulty, that, that no, no harm can come to me unless Krishna has sanctioned it. And Krishna is my best friend, Suridam Sarabhutana. Therefore, if Krishna is allowing this difficulty, it must be for my good. I was just reading one of my friends who owns cows and goats. By the way, Krishna also had goats and buffalo, not just cows. But anyway, one of my friends who has cows and goats, 
um, the veterinarian was teaching her how to give her animals an injection when they were sick. And she was saying that she'd never done that before and she really didn't want to give them an injection, but one of her goats had this serious infection. So she was talking about how she just talked to the goat and was petting it and then gave it the injection and then was you know, feeding it and telling the goat how actually I love you. You know, it's like that. That we take it that if Krishna is allowing someone to insult me, if Krishna is allowing me to break my leg, if Krishna is allowing me to have my money stolen, if Krishna is, you know, if Krishna is allowing this, then it must be for some good purpose. He must have some benefit in mind. And therefore I thank him. I thank him by physically offering obeisances. I offer obeisances with my body. I praise him with my words. And I think how kind the Lord is. He's doing this for some... There's something that needs to be adjusted in me for which he is doing that. There's... Um, I, I worked for a while in a government school in America as part of getting my doctorate. And the, the only person at school that knew that I was a secret Hare Krishna devotee worked in the same office as, as I was. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Krishna. But the person who worked in the same office knew I was a devotee because I had to be completely undercover there. Anyway, she was a real heavy-duty Christian, a sweet lady, very sweet lady, really, really born again. And so she used to play all this Christian music in the office all the time, which was a lot nicer than listening to, you know. Anyway, one of the songs she used to play was I Praise You in This Storm. It was a really, really nice song. You know, it was, it was like I praise you in this storm and I, I call for you and I still don't see you. I don't know where you are. I don't know why you're doing this to me, but I still go on praising you in this storm. So that's the, the mood. And eventually we do see why. You know, Sometimes we see an hour later, sometimes we see a week later. There was one thing happened to me, it took me 15 years to see. Oh, that was a blessing. Some things we may not see while we're in this body, but eventually we'll, we'll see that everything is a blessing that everything is kindness. And therefore we're grateful, even for the things that, you know, apparently are, are horrific. Anybody else? Yes, Johnny Tiger. Thank you very much, Mother, for a class. I guess this uh, point of fault finding I always find it difficult because I'm such an expert fault finder. Um, I'm just wondering if, obviously, you know, this is the principle you, you mentioned at one point. Don't who here doesn't want to become a, a pure devotee who doesn't fault find so we can come to the platform of Vishnu and beyond. So I'm just wondering, but is this in all circumstances? Because let's say as a role, recently having to deal with some issues and concerns where. Someone may be doing something either inappropriate, illegal, mm. uh, immoral, uh, or just uh, dharmic. Then you say, well, you know, at least they didn't stab me. At least they didn't chop the head off of someone. Uh, but let's, you know, give them a break. And, you know. So I'm just. Um, I'm really glad that I'm really glad that you that you asked that. There's, um, I think it's a letter from Bhakti Siddhanta where he says it's the, the duty of the guru to find faults with the disciple. He said, but this is, it's not a nice duty. 
and it's a dangerous duty. He was writing to the disciples and saying, why do you want this? Why do you want to take this up? So, it is the duty of, it is actually a service of some devotees to find fault. If parents don't find fault with their children, the children will grow up terribly. They have to say, it's wrong to hit your little brother over the head with your toy fire truck. They have to say that. You know, or the kid's going to grow up to be a monster. You know, I've heard some devotees use Chanika Pandit's thing to say, until the kids are five, let them do whatever they want. I'm like, you're going to hate your kids. Mother Soda didn't let Krishna do whatever he wanted until he was five. And the same for teachers. You know, if we just look at the essay and say, oh, it's beautiful. You know, we have to say, the grammar's off there, and the, you forgot the full stop, and the spelling's wrong. That, that's our job. People ask me all the time to give feedback on things they have written. And I always say, what kind of feedback do you want? I was trained by Jai Deutsche Swami to be an editor. What do you want? You know, and sometimes they don't want my editing skills. Sometimes they get very offended. And I try to figure that out. And if I figure out they don't really want my editing skills, I just say, oh, very nice, very nice. But, you know, like I'm working on two books and we hire editors. And when you hire editors, you want them to find the faults. That's what you're paying them for. And, you know, if, if you're a judge, you're supposed to order the death penalty for murderers. You're the representative of God. And if a murderer is given the death penalty, then you've acted as God to give them their karma. And they don't have to suffer in the next life. Prabhupada wanted the GBC, the Tamil presidents, to root out Adharma and Islam. That, that's part of their job. It's not a pleasant job. But, you know, just make sure it's our job. If, if we're trying to do something that's not our service, like many years ago I, I saw something in, in Vrindavan that was really bothering me, and I had tried to fix it for years. I had talked to, you know a series of different temple presidents over the years. I'd gone to the GBC, and the GBC said, we agree with you, but there's nothing we can do. And so I was talking to Burjan Prabhu about it in the temple room, the courtyard. And, and Burjan Prabhu said, there's too much of you in this room. I said, you have too much of a vested interest in this thing. I said, I know, but I just, I'm not able to let go of it. And he said, anyway, this is not your service to fix this. No one's given this to you as your service. And that really struck me. I said, but it is bothering me, Prabhu. What should I do? He said, go talk to Balaram. I said, why Balaram? He said, well, everyone thinks it's Radhashadam's temple, but actually it's Krishna Balaram's temple. I said, okay, but why Balaram? He said, because he's the older brother. So I went up to the altar and I talked to Balaram and I said, Balaram, this and this and this is happening. It's against Prabhupada's instructions. It's against the GBC resolutions. I've tried to fix it for the last like seven, eight years and nothing happens. Will you please take care of it? And then I just let it go. And within two years it was fixed. But I, I really see, you know, what's my service? Is it my service to go around fixing things? Is it my service to call out everybody who's immoral or cheating or whatever? There is a place in the universe for people who take pleasure in that. You know, if, if you really want to punish evildoers, what can you become? A Yamaduda. You know, so that, and you can work under Yamaraj, he's a pure devotee. 
So you're doing it service, it's service for Yamaraj, it's service for Krishna ultimately. So, you know, if you really want to do that, if you're like, let me go around, you did that wrong, and you're going to get it. You know, there's, there's a place for you in the universe. So we should be extremely, extremely careful. It's said in the first canto, I believe, Prabhupada talks about how Krishna punishes wrongdoers with regret. It's not, it's, it, he doesn't like to punish his beloved parts and parcels. I mean, he, he enjoys fighting with the demons, but he, 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 it's something he doesn't enjoy. And, and parents, I mean, I can speak as a parent and as a teacher, you really don't like punishing kids. It's just like your your court of last resort. All right, go take a time out in the corner until you settle down. But it's not the first thing you do, and you really don't like it. You don't like taking their toy away. You don't like putting them in the corner. You know, you, you try to work with them through any other means possible. And you also, when you have to correct people, you, you try to do it in a way where they don't feel that you're attacking because you don't want to generate that rage response from the other person, that defense response from the other person because it's, it's very baked into our physiology. So you want to deal with the other person kindly, but not always. I mean, sometimes Prabhupada would heavily correct people publicly. Not often, but sometimes. He did once when someone put salt in the charnamrita. Who has done this, he said. You know, so there, there are times when the guru can do that. The guru is, is, is heavy. The guru can cut. You know, but if you want to be a guru who can be heavy and cut, you also have to, to take the responsibility of delivering your disciples back to Godhead. It's, it goes both ways. So if, if one is taking the responsibility of taking care of a project for Srila Prabhupada, then also you have that. It's part of your responsibility. But it should... One has to be very careful that the heart is in the right place, you know? Just like we say the judge, they're, they're a disinterested party. So we should be very, very careful, even if it's our service, and even if it's our duty and it's our responsibility. You know, I'm, I'm an editor for Back to Godhead, and people submit their articles, and the majority of submissions we can't accept. They're, I'm sorry, they're just awful. Most of them. We, we just, I'm sorry. The vast majority of them. And you, you, but, you, but they're, they're the children of the writer. People feel about their writing the way that people feel about their babies. You know, you don't go to a mother and say, you know, your kid's actually kind of ugly. So it's really hard to go to a writer and say there's something wrong, especially something philosophically wrong. And so we really, it's, it's one of the jobs of our editor-in-chief. We say whatever we want to say in the conference among ourselves, but it's a confidential conference. And then our editor-in-chief has to take our comments and kind of spin them. <coughs> you know, and there, there are some times when the editor-in-chief will ask for our help and say, you know, I have to say something really heavy to this writer, but I don't want to burn them out. Can you help me craft it? And, and so sometimes we'll like very carefully write it. Like, well, th- this is a, a really important subject you've written about. It's something that people really need to hear about. I'm not sure if it's suitable for our audience. And, and maybe you could find this in this place where you could publish it. And, you know, perhaps if you put in a few more quotations. And sometimes we'll even say to people, 
you know, I see that you have a lot of innate talent. It might really help if you did some study about how to write. So we, we have some way that the person doesn't feel defeated and they don't feel crushed. I mean, now obviously if somebody's stealing the, the money from the deity box, you know, you may have to ban them from the temple for a while. That's another thing. Sometimes that has to be, sometimes that has to be done. But that's, that should be a real court of last resort. Is that all right? So thank you very much for your hospitality here in Soho. I really appreciate it. I'll be leaving uh, tomorrow morning for Crowley, and then from there to Dubai, and from there to India. So, I, I, it's already nine, so I should probably stop. Sorry, but I, I really want to thank you. It's one of the most enlivening temples in, in Iskand. Uh, all your Harinams and your book distribution, your prasadam distribution, and exciting morning programs and exciting evening programs and classes going on all the time and all sorts of educational uh, things. So it's. Uh, so one of the most vibrant places in the Hare Krishna movement. So thank you very much for all of your contribution and thank you for keeping this place together even though sometimes you have to fault find people. To a fault by Keith.